are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Natalie Hopkinson, who is a former staff writer, editor, and culture critic at the Washington Post and The Root. Dr. Hopkinson is an assistant professor in Howard University's graduate program in communications, culture, and media studies, and a fellow at the Interactivity Foundation, where her policy focus has included the arts, culture, engaging urban communities, education, gender, and sexuality. She has authored two nonfiction books on culture, Deconstructing Tyrone, which was co-authored with Natalie Y. Moore, and Go Go Live, which Spin Magazine named a top 10 book on music in 2012. Dr. Hopkinson began her career as a writer and editor in the Washington Post style and outreach Sunday opinion sections and later joined the Post-owned Slate Group as a member of the founding team of editors of the Web Journal of Politics and Culture, The Root. She is also a working journalist and adjunct faculty member of Georgetown University's Master's in Journalism program and frequently writes, speaks, and consults on culture and education. Her commentary and writing have appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, TheAtlantic.com, NPR, Essence Magazine, and the BBC. She lives with her family in Washington, D.C. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Natalie Hopkinson to Baltimore and the Pratt Library. Hello. Thank you so much for having me here today to talk about this book that's really uh, personally meaningful to me. Um, so I will get right to it. Um, so the book is A Mouth is Always Muzzled, A Six Dissidents, Five Continents, and the Art of Resistance. Um, this book, actually, I'm trying to click here. Okay. So while she's fiddling with that, I'll talk a little bit about how I started this process. So as um, was just mentioned, I am a fellow at the Interactivity Foundation, and the very first project that I did with them was called The Future of the Arts and Society. And in this project, it was basically a discussion-based project where I recruited a bunch of artists um, to talk about what sort of public policies we might need for the arts in the future. And um, so in the process of doing that, we put together this discussion guide, which I'll show you in a minute. Um, and an editor at the New Press, which is a wonderful publisher based in New York, reached out to me about doing, okay, here we go. So this is the arts policy guide, the future of the arts and societies on the left. And um, this arts, this word cloud is actually some of the ideas that some of the artists generated about what 
why art is important in our society and what sort of functions it has in our society. So this is a pretty abstract, you know, exercise. And, and so, you know, when I'm, I was thinking about doing a book about it, it, you know, you know when you write a book, it has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it has to be a narrative, and there have to be characters and stories. And so the place that I went to do that was um, Georgetown, Guyana. So this, these are my parents, uh, Terrence and Serena, on their wedding day in 1970. Um, they migrated to Canada, where I was born, and um, at the time that I started this project on the arts, the future of the arts and society, I had started going back to visit Guyana to learn more about um, my family and connected with artists there. And so that ended up being the place where I actually rooted this exploration um, of, of what art means to our society. So um, just a little bit of background about Guyana. So this photo was taken in 2015 at, during Mashramani. Mashramani is Guyana's carnival, um, and so it happens every year. And it, Guyana is an indigenous word for land of many waters, and so it's at the northern tip of South America. And there's actually five Guyanas. There was British Guyana, French Guyana, Venezuela, uh, Suriname, Venezuela is Spanish, uh, Suriname was the Dutch, uh, Brazil's where the Portuguese had their way. So basically this is, you could, this is where the crossroads of empires um, is where my family comes from. And it's also, Guyana is also, no, so after the British left in uh, the mid-1960s, it became just simply Guyana. Um, and so this ceremony was where I opened this book. Um, and basically what I did was I told the story of this really, really crazy election um, in 2015 uh, that may sound familiar to those of us who lived through, um, <laughs> through the last election here. Um, so the time I took this picture, uh, so this was February 23rd, 2015, and it was on the eve of the national elections. And the whole country seemed to be falling apart at that time. They were really divided by race. So the ruling government was not only cartoonishly ignorant and misogynist, uh, there was this nasty authoritarian streak. And each new day brought a new outrage by this thieving, lying government. And when this branch of the government, the executive branch of the government, uh, when the legislative branch tried to put the executive branch in check, the uh, president actually dissolved the parliament in Guyana. And so there was a referendum that was going to happen um, in this election 2015. But at the time that I arrived there, people were really helplessly divided about how to react to this threat from the government. Neighbors refused to talk to neighbors about politics because it got too heated. Um, and... So this is a story about this election, but it's also about a time and place when things like painting, like poetry and ideas, uh, they seem like indulgences, luxuries that society could not afford. Um, and so really the story um, that I tell in this book is really about how that notion could not be more wrong. You know, at the time when your back is against the wall, you need art, you need artists actually the most. Um, so, as I mentioned, Guyana is the place where my parents are born. It's the former British colony nestled in Amazonian rainforest. Um, so Guyana is actually still 80% covered in rainforest, so it's a very underdeveloped country. Um, it's known as the land of six people. 
Um, and it seems that none of these peoples get along, uh, you know, so like all of the, the different um, peoples who came to colonize were also there, but then you also had people who came to work the land. So there were African slaves that were in Guyana. There were indentured workers from uh, India that are there. And so it's a whole big stew. Um, Guyana is it's the second poorest country in the Western hemisphere behind Haiti. Um, and it has the world's highest suicide rate, uh, which is a very dubious uh, distinction. It's to give you an idea of the economics that the currency currently trades at 200 to one. So each dollar is each U.S. dollar is worth 200 Guyanese dollar. And Guyana has really fallen really far off the global map, um, so much so that we did not make Trump's shithole list, um, which was very. <laughs> kind of hurtful, you know, sort of irrelevance, uh, really singes. But, um, but there's hope that we could make it onto this shithole list because uh, at the time of this election where people did not know it, this was not commonly known at all within Guyana, but ExxonMobil had actually found about $200 billion worth of oil off the coast of Guyana. So, and they have since revised that it could be as much as $400 billion worth of oil that are in Guyana. So, um, you know, we have an opportunity to see looking forward how much, you know, history sort of repeats itself in Guyana. Um, but at the heart of this story that I tell are two artists. So it's really told through their eyes. So the first artist that I really focus on telling the story of this election, this crazy time in Guyana's history, is this woman, Bernadette Persaud. Uh, she's a painter and an educator. Um, and she is of, of East Indian descent. So her ancestors came to Guyana as indentured. After slavery was abolished in the British Empire, they brought in um, indentured workers to Guyana. And so they actually comprise, the lar they're the largest ethnic group in Guyana. They're a little bit more than half the population are descended from indentured workers. So a lot of people don't realize that. Um, she's one of my favorite people in the world. She's standing behind one of her paintings. Um, and the other main character uh, that I tell the story through is a poet named Ruel Johnson, born in 1980. Um, he is a poet and an activist, and they have two extremely different views of the role that art is supposed to play in society. Um, so to go back to Bernadette, if I can, okay, if, go back to Bernadette, um, she's seen it all. So she's seen British rule, she's seen African rule, she's seen Indian rule, and she is pretty fed up with all of it. I mean, she's extremely cynical um, about the ability for uh, politics to bring change, and she really believes that, um, she, she doesn't believe that art should be used as a tool for anything except for the pure expression of ideas and refinement of expression. And so she does not want, she does not consider herself a tool. Her hands are not tools. She's been through various uh, socialist administrations in Guyana that have sort of soured her on the whole idea of this sort of very, this idea of collectivism, this radical collectivism. Um, but she's still a major resistor and she's her work is extremely subversive um but it's in her own way um and 
Ruel Johnson, on the other hand, you know, so he's a millennial, um, and he really believes that art, he's sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum. He believes that art can be a tool. Um, art can not only be not only be a tool to resist tyranny, but he also believes that art can be a tool to deliver Guyana into the future. Like, so he really believes these sort of ideas that you hear about Richard Florida and the creative class, about how you know, creative economies are the economies of the future. And so he believes, because Guyana sort of missed the whole industrial phase, um, he believes they could just leapfrog past that and go straight to the creative, creative fields. And so he believes that that, so he has this vision of Guyana's future that, in which art is an integral part of that. Um, so along the way of telling the story of these two artists and this crazy election, um, I had to go back and do some background, you know, sort of like a history lesson to sort of understand, like, why would anybody care about this little country, you know, in the middle of uh, nowhere, maybe? Um, and so I do the, I go back in time and do some of this, some of the historical work. So. One of the figures that I look at is a historian named Walter Rodney, um, who was killed in 1980 in a car bomb in Georgetown. Um, Walter Rodney is one of probably one of the purest articulations of many of the themes in the book about um, art and resistance. Um, and no one went as hard or was as fearless as Walter Rodney. Um, he's best known for a book called How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Um, he was kicked out of, he studied, he did his um, PhD at the University of London. Uh, he taught in Jamaica, taught in uh, Tanzania, was kicked out of Jamaica, expelled from Jamaica, also sort of expelled from Tanzania as well, ends up back in Guyana, more trouble. Um, so, you know, his story actually became a very important storyline in the 2015 election because they actually the government brought this thing called the Walter Rodney Commission of Inquiry, where they wanted to get to the bottom of how, why he was killed, who killed him, why he was killed. Most people knew it was the government that uh, had to do with it, but I was actually pretty surprised um, at some of the things that I learned <laughs> about what actually was happening. Um, but he's a major resistor. Um, and for me, his story, you know, as an academic, for me, it's, it's sort of like very inspirational in thinking about, you know, a lot of academics live in their heads and they're in the world of ideas and they're not necessarily about getting their hands dirty. And uh, he was not an armchair intellectual. He was all hands on. Um, and uh, so his story is told. So because he, he was killed under African rule, um, so af after independence, the United States installed a dictator named Forbes Burnham, who was of African descent. So he was, although Africans were not the large, they were the second largest ethnic group in Guyana, they still, they held political power for about 20 years because the United States government propped him up, right? And so um, he, Walter Rodney was somebody who was very much resisting this government because it was a dictatorship, because it was not democratic, because it squelched the, the voice of the um, Indo-Guyanese population and everybody and many other populations. And so he was killed. And so while this election was going on, the ruling government at this point, the Indian, uh, there was an Indian ruling party was primarily of Indian um, Indo-Guyanese were, had been in power for another 20 years, 20 plus years. And they, 
held these hearings as a way to kind of scare voters. You know, they wanted people to be scared of the way when the Africans ruled. And so um, his, the stories, it was almost like he was still around, you know, the way that people were sort of talking about him um, during the time of the 2015 election. Um, and then in the process, I sort of, I think I found out, I think, what happened, actually, which is, and it was pretty surprising. Um, the other way, the other ways that I went sort of back in history was telling the story of John Berger, um, who was born in London, worked from 1926 to 2017, so now I'm on number four of six artists. Um, John Berger comes into this story because in 1972 he was awarded the Booker Prize for Literature for a book he wrote called, a novel called G. And at the time that he won this award, and you know, if if you're familiar with it's very prestigious um, war award for English language literature. He actually used the occasion to blast Booker, um, the Booker Company, which had been established in Guyana in 1934, the same year that uh, slavery was abolished, and had basically owned the country of Guyana and basically raped the country of Guyana for up until that time in 1972. They were still deriving all their product, their, their uh, their profits out of Guyana. And so he blasted them for 150 years of exploitation, and he announced that he was giving half of his prize money to the Black Panther Party in protest. Um, so in telling his story was a way for me to go back and explain um, you know, more about the sort of the economic, um, the, and again, this is like sort of a global story of the economic picture in Guyana. Um, and so that's John Berger. Um, the other history lesson was uh, this chapter that sort of centered around uh, this an exhibit in nineteen in, in two thousand fourteen by Kara Walker, famous artist MacArthur genius. Um, she did a uh, an exhibit called um, a subtlety, uh, and I'm actually going to read from it a little bit uh, today. I thought it would be very useful to talk about this exhibit. This, was, this took place at the Domino Sugar Factory, and I'll explain a little bit more as I, as I read this chapter. But part of the reason why I, I thought it was important to include this chapter is that um, there's a lot of amnesia around the global web, global economic web, and how we're all connected. And so you know, part of the reason why I thought this might be um, interesting to Baltimore audiences that you all had a Domino Sugar factory as well, right? So could you tell me really quickly, like, is it still, what is the state, I mean, is it still operating? Is it abandoned? What is the Domino Sugar factory here? Do you know, does anybody know? So it's still in operation. Wow, that's really heavy. Well, when I read this, you'll see how really heavy that is. So, you know, part of the thing about the, the sugar factory is that places like Guyana, Jamaica, you know, all the Caribbean would not exist without the sugar industry. That was the only thing that really made going into these tropical places profitable for the colonizers, you know, who were these, you know, people who left Europe to try to make a new life. Um, particularly in Guyana, which again is a rainforest, you know, so it didn't make a lot of sense. But once they realized that they could grow sugar in these places, and Guyana was one of the most profitable because they were in the rainforest and they could get two crops per year, whereas in Jamaica they could only get one crop per year. So Guyana had that uh, that climate that allowed that to happen, and so. In doing this um, exhibit, she really brought up a whole, uh, 
the whole history of sugar and how it's really a global story. So one of the reviewers was wondering, well, why is Kara Walker in this, in this story about Guyana? And, um, you know, when you understand, like, the, the global slave trade and the global trade for sugar, you understand that we are all involved, we're all sort of connected in this. So I will read um, a little bit from that chapter. And it's called Sweet Ruins. Okay, so I opened it with a little poem by Martin Carter, who I'll talk about again because he's artist number six. Um, like a web is spun, the pattern, all in, are involved, all are consumed. Okay, so inside the abandoned Domino Sugar Refinery in New York, the first thing that hits you is the smell. Over a century's worth of industrial grime clinging to black molasses-coated walls. At first whiff, it's kind of sweet, like stale cake. As you go deeper into the cavernous brick building, it gives way to a sour curdling. As my 10-year-old daughter Maven describes it, it's like how my cat smells when he throws up. Maven, my friend Izetta, and I are among more than 100,000 people who made the pilgrimage in the summer of 2014 to pay homage to the Sugar Sphinx, the 75-foot-long, 40-foot-high creation of Carl Walker, one of the most important and provocative artists working in the United States. The sculpture is 40 tons of sugar molded into a ghostly white apparition, part mammy, part sphinx. The line to see her takes more than an hour to travel and stretches out for four long Brooklyn blocks. I spot the writer Gaitra Bahadur, whose recent book, Cooley Woman explores the history of indentured sugar workers in Guyana. Bahadur's research on sugar plantation life and its bitter aftertaste among Guyanese women speaks forcefully to the exhibit we came to see. I wave Bahadur over to join us in line. The installation's title is displayed in bold black type, painted along the Domino Sugar Factory's brick facade. It's called A Subtlety, or The Marvelous Sugar Baby, an homage to the unpaid and overworked artisans who have refined our sweet tastes from the cane fields to the kitchens of the New World on the occasion of the demolition of the Domino Sugar Refining Plant. The original Domino factory, first built in 1850s Williamsburg, was being torn down, and along with it, stories of generations of lives that it touched around the world. The factory was just one stop in the sugar industry's triangular trade that created the blueprint for the globalized economy. Investors came from Europe, labor came from Africa, the cane fields were located in points across the global south. The Domino refinery was the final step before the sugar reached consumers. Raw sugar would arrive at Domino's 40,000 square foot facility and through the magic of refinery, pristine white sugar would come out. The profits that followed made sugar a key fuel of empire. The title, A Subtlety, is taken for, straight from history. Centuries ago, subtleties referred to elaborate edible toys made of sugar. These exotic treats and status symbols were first made in the Middle East and popularized among the 17th century European aristocracy. These subtleties could be trees, architectural models, or depictions of peasants holding back baskets of fruit. 
but there was nothing subtle about them given what a rare and expensive luxury sugar was at the time. Unveiled at dinner parties, these were ostentatious displays of the host's clout. The sugar sculptures could also be used to send more subversive messages. Sly rebukes to heretics and politicians were conveyed in these sugared emblems, writes Sidney Mintz in Sweetness and Power. Carl Walker is a MacArthur genius known for her black and white palette and raw sexual reenactments of American history. The artist seized on the occasion of the demolition of the factory as an opportunity to invite the public to consider Sugar's history of power, conquest, luxury, and sex. Walker directed a small army of artisans over several weeks to construct her vision of the Sugar Sphinx, the National Endowment of the Arts, the Domino Sugar, and the private gallery Sakema Jenkins & Co. were among the sponsors lined up to support this production. It was the kind of razzle-dazzle spectacle only possible in a country with food to spare. Admission to the installation is free, and we are encouraged to post responses under the hashtag Domino Kara Walker Domino hashtag. That made participants an essential part of the artistic performance. We don't just remember the sexualized horrors of plantation life. We are participants, co-conspirators, and consumers. Inside the old factory, we follow a trail of sugar babies, life-size statues of brown boys rendered in brown sugar, shirtless and covered in loincloths, carrying baskets also created by Walker. They are arranged as though cutting a path in the field on the way to their mother. We snap a photo of my friend Izetta, who's less than five feet tall, and head-to-head with one of the sugar babies. One sugar baby's basket is tossed over his shoulder. Another balances his basket on his back. Their smiles aim to please. Soon, though, we see that New York City's July heat has brutalized some of the sugar babies. One has collapsed in a puddle of black syrup. His creepy light smile is perfectly preserved as his body parts lie violently askew. It looks like a crime scene. We see another fallen sugar baby. It's a massacre. My daughter Maven snaps more photos with her tablet. Then we reach the sugar sphinx herself. As per all monuments, she commands authority through sheer scale. Crouching at 40 feet tall, Her firm breasts and large white areolas stand at attention. She has the same African nose and imperious cheekbones of her creator, Walker. Wide eyes stare off into the distance, blank as the Egyptian. Her lips met in two thick bows. Her expansive nose tilts upward. Nostrils flare with a delicious impertinence. A wide handkerchief covers her head and knots above her left eye, a crown. She's leaning regally on front paws, and her countenance of that is an imperial lioness yawning at her place at atop the food chain. Bow down, bitches. People scope out places to take selfies all around her meaty limbs, carved in the fertile curves of a hip-hop video vixen. All around us, cell phone cameras pop off everywhere. The crowd forms several small bottlenecks at the back, where her feet are tucked beneath a rear end that's arched impossibly high. When we do arrive at this final destination, everyone is caught off guard by the sculpture's level of detail. It is easily the largest vagina any of us have ever seen. 
A black woman wearing sunglasses, a curly weave, and a long-sleeved body-hugging dress works on a pose for her hashtag Walker domino response. A 30-ish dreadlock man in a red shirt stands ready with an iPhone and a telephoto camera to snap the woman who faces us with her back to the sugar sphinx. She raises clasped hands up over her head when the model's index fingers stop bullseye on the sugar sphinx long, meaty labia, the photographer gestures for her to freeze. He gets off several snaps of her manually penetrating the sugar sphinx with her index fingers. He's just getting warm when an exhibit volunteer, a 20-inch white woman wearing a Creative Time t-shirt, intervenes. She exchanges a few words with the model I could not hear, and the photo shoot is over. I asked the model what happened. She told me, she said that's not allowed. She says, gesturing toward the sweet pussy behind her. I mean, what else were we supposed to? The dreadlock director gives a smirk. I guess it's un-American or something, he shrugs. So I'll stop there. Basically, with this exhibit at the Domino Sugar Factory in New York, people just lost their minds. And to me, that was sort of the point of it. And I think that was the point that Carl... I don't know that she expected people to sexualize and and, uh, basically try to degrade the Sugar Sphinx, but that says so much about black women's place and how these historical stories, um, they... It's not hidden, you know, like these, it doesn't take much to bring all that sort of history of subjugation um, out. And, you know, Carl Walker is somebody who brought that whole history. And for me, I wasn't expecting to include this in my book, even though I had my book contract at that point. But after seeing this, um, I had to go home and I called my grandmother and say, well, you know, what's our history of sugar? You know, were we ever, you know, were, do we have any family that works in sugarcane field? And her answer was no. Um, and so because after uh, slavery was abolished in Guyana, they brought, because Guyana was one of the newest colonies, they got the British to spend an enormous amount of money bringing in, in, in Indian indentured workers to replace them. So the African uh, connection to the sugarcane is, is pretty um, uh, distant. But, you know, it's, again, it's one of these submerged histories that we don't talk about. And every time you pass the domino factory, you should remember, you know, a lot of these things that happen. Um, so the last artist um, that I'll talk about and that I talk about in the book is Martin Carter, who I read this, uh, a, a little excerpt from one of his poems. And actually, I have his poems all over this. Um, he's a Guyanese poet, uh, lived from 1927 to 1997. And I tell the story of this particular poem that is my title, um, A Mouth is Always Muzzled. The full stanza reads, A mouth is always muzzled by the food it eats to live. Um, and when I came across the poem, I just felt like it didn't just explain what I was trying to do in the book, but it kind of just explained life in general. You know, every mouth is muzzled by the food it eats to live. Um, I believe Trump's mouth is muzzled, you know, uh, maybe not enough, uh, but it, it is muzzled. You know, we all have, a, it's in our ongoing quest for survival, we all have to make compromises. Um, and in a small country like Guyana, it, it's, everything is just more extreme. It's more colorful. It's more intense. Um, but I think you would find 
connections to it just as a human being because every mouth is muzzled. Um, but the message, and as we sort of follow these artists um, through the end of this crazy, crazy election when a uh, dissident is killed, you know, in the process, and, uh, you know, people are really undergoing, um, you know, a lot of uh, adversity. Um, but if these artists can speak out, you know, in 2015, um, when the average person makes $3,400 a year and the government controls most of the economy, um, I think that all of us can do more to rip off the muzzles um, in our lives. And so my hope is that the stories in this book um, inspire people to pick up a brick, you know, metaphorically, of course. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're, they're doing it with a lot less. Um, and so I, I just drew a lot of inspiration from the, the artists, both present and past. Um, and I hope that you do, too. So thank you very much. And I'm happy to take any questions. Yeah. What was your reaction to that uh, the model? Um, okay, so part of the reason why I even went was that I heard that this was happening and that Carl Walker was like freaking out over it. So I've had, you know, I had mixed feelings about her as an artist before this, right? And so I'd heard that this was happening, you know, and that she was kind of like, why are people, like, she was really outraged and there was a lot of social media chatter about it, like, why are people degrading the sugar sphinx, you know? And so when I actually saw it happening, I was kind of like, let me just record every moment and let me talk to these people and figure out what was going on. But um, I think that this was part of it. So she was actually secretly filming people, you know? So I think she's going to come out with it, uh, you know, she might come out with something again later, but I kind of think that as, as with a lot of her work, like none of her work is this interactive, right? But a lot of her work is about pushing those buttons, you know, these historical, you know, she does a lot of antebellum um, imagery in her work, very highly sexualized images. And, you know, it was really like a 3D version, you know, and the sort of like interactive, immersive experience in that. And so, I mean, I just thought it was very telling, you know, that that's how, that's how people would react to this. You know, not with awe of this incredible feat of sculpture and this history that she wanted us to reflect on, you know, what, what actually happened in those fields. You know, what happened, you know, what was this history that really difficult for us to know because we don't really have a lot of um, you know, we just don't have a lot of information about what, how the women felt in the fields, you know, and, and then, you know, even the fact that, you know, so and just to even go back to it, I mean, the thing that was so powerful about this and just brilliant is that she's not only, she's the product, but she's also the means of production, you know, and so that's the double the double work that black women played, you know, and so it really sort of brought out this kind of gendered, um, you know, gendered dimension of slavery that, um, you know, we just don't have enough of. So I think it was brilliant. I became a big fan at that point because it also just forced me to go back and, and really learn about something that I had no idea about. Like, I did not know Guyana's history of sugar. I did not know how slavery and indentured work. I had no idea that, you know, I, I grew up eating roti and curry, like that's Guyana's food. 
I didn't know until grad school when I had a potluck with some people from India, you know, and they brought their roti and curry. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, like what, what? you know, I, I, I didn't actually make the connection because I didn't know. And nobody talks about this stuff. So, you know, I think that's an important thing that artists can do is to bring these things, these conversations to the surface. And so, you know, she brought this back in 2014. So this is gone. This does not exist anymore. Um, the, it was dismantled. I think she kept one of the hands. Um, and then I think a couple of the sugar babies actually went on tour later. And I talk about this. They went to Art Basel. And so it was kind of truly like a recreation of this historical thing where rich people have these things to show off their wealth. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's wonderful that it, it's allowing us to have these conversations. And, you know, the fact that the Baltimore Domino factory still, it's still, you know, like there are stories there. And it's like a global story. You know, it's, it's not like those, the sugar came, comes from somewhere. Any other questions? Yes. Um, so Walter Rodney. Okay. So super brilliant man. Um, does his PhD at age 24 on the West African slave trade at the University of London, which is what was then the School of Oriental Studies. Um, comes back. He, but he actually started becoming under surveillance of the, you know, this is like the Red Scare <laughs> time. So he, he had visited... Uh, Russia and Cuba as an undergraduate and he started getting he kind of started getting trailed uh, by the authorities that be so the police started following him they actually were following him in London when he was in studying he was part of a lot of Marxist study groups in London with CLR James and um, he went back to his undergraduate alma mater, the um, University of the West Indies in Kingston, Jamaica, and was sort of like a rebel rouser. He was hanging out with uh, Rastas, which was not done in the 60s. They were like these people, these outcast, untouchable people that no educated people would hang out with at all. Um, and he was giving speeches about Black Panther in these communities, and he was big about taking knowledge into the communities and not leaving it in the ivory tower. Um, he went to a Black Power conference in 1968, and he it, it was in Montreal. And while he was there, the government of Jamaica declared him persona non grata. And when his plane landed, they sent it back to Canada. <laughs> his wife and daughter, or wife and yes, wife and daughter were still here. Pregnant wife and daughter were still in in Kingston. And so, as a result, the Rastas and the students rioted for four days, and four people died. Actually, it was more than it was. It's about a week, and uh, four people died. There was millions of property damage. So it was one of the riots of 1968 that people don't um, remember that as much. So after he left, so he's expelled from Jamaica. He goes back to University of Tanzania, where he had spent a year before, and he did the same thing. He was just always stirring stuff up and agitating. And um, he wasn't exactly kicked out, but he really wore out his welcome there, <laughs> you know, again, agitating against the government. And so when he came back to Guyana, he was really hoping that, you know, to have a better place. So while he was in Tanzania is when he published How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, which was an international bestseller. 
Um, I know that Paul Coates, who he's celebrating 40, uh, his 40th anniversary, Black Classic Press. So this is another Baltimore connection. This weekend, he's celebrating that. Um, so he's actually in the book, because I interviewed him, because he's Walter Rodney's current publisher. So it was actually published at Howard University Press in the 70s. And then when Paul Coates uh, assumed those archives for that press, he, that was, he ended up taking over Howard University Press, but he did keep How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, which is still a top seller for him um, all these years later. Um, so, you know, he's just a really powerful intellectual, really powerful analyses of colonialism and oppression. And I feel a kind of a couple ways about him because on the one hand, I'm very inspired by him and that, you know, this is what I aspire to be is somebody who's out in the community and not just hiding in the tower. Um, but on the other hand, I'm like, you know, if he had just had a little bit more chill, <laughs> you know, he might have written so many more great books you know so it's like you need the person in the street but you also need the intellectual work too and so you know it's one of those things that maybe you're, there is a time to be muzzled I don't know you know <laughs> I don't know maybe there is a time to be muzzled sometimes but I do wish that I could read a lot more of his work um, and I wish he were more around but he's a very powerful symbol and I, I in that chapter where I talk about his legacy I do talk about how his legacy is in London so that was another trip to London where they had a major exhibition featuring his work and his iconography and they just had a new there's a new film on Walter Rodney that was produced by a history professor at the University of West Indies about his student years Um, so his legacy is strong he's living on there's Walter Rodney conference every year um, there are parks all over the world named after him, streets, you know, so he's a major post-colonial uh, theorist and, um, you know, somebody who's, whose legacy is very much alive. Anything? New? Well, so I'm actually, with the Walter Rodney stuff, um, I am doing some work, some follow-up work that goes deeper into 1968. So I went to Jamaica in December. I got a faculty research grant, so I went to Jamaica because I wanted to know more about the 68. You know, there's all these commemorations happening right now. So next month I'll be going to London. Um, there's a America's in 1968 conference, so I'll be presenting some of the research where I'm analyzing the student work with student publications during that time, 68, and also the popular music at the time, you know, which is amazing, it told the story. So when he was um, expelled, uh, one of the popular musicians wrote a uh, song called Dr. Walter Rodney, and that was also banned uh, by the Jamaican government. So it was banned for the radio airwaves. And so, you know, I'm looking at all that popular music and the, the uh, some of the, those things. Um, I'm also doing, you know, more. My previous book was about go-go music in Washington D.C. and looking at it as a lens to to look at the, how sort of cultural history of Black Washington. And so I'm continuing some of that research um, as well. So yeah, working on you know a few other things. Yeah. Anybody else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I actually was the first job I got at the Washington Post was I was putting together an arts guide uh, for in Prince George's County, Maryland. So I was stationed out at that bureau. 
I was actually split between downtown and out in Prince George's County. So I put together an arts guide. And so that's really what um, kind of started me down this path. And I've just, and then when I started working at the Interactivity Foundation, they actually suggested the topic arts and society to me. So I, I keep getting back into the space, you know, which is great because, you know, I really did grow up in the arts. My mother worked at a historic black theater and I grew up doing, you know, theater and art dance, you know, in this black cultural space in Indianapolis um, where we later moved. Um, So, you know, it's it's something that's always been a part of me and I, I feel really privileged to get to think about art and talk about art and write about art, you know, and culture for so long. Yeah, thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.